Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 32 is our passage. I'm going to read verse 16 so that we remember what it was the apostles were doing that produced such anger and fury on the part of the Jewish authorities. This will help us to remember that. So Acts 5, beginning in verse 16. Let us hear now the word of God. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the very word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we come desiring to know your great works. We want to understand what you have done in history and what you continue to do in the present day. Uh, So we ask that you would uh, illuminate our minds and hearts uh, through the hearing of this passage, that we might come away uh, strengthened with a sense of how great you are and how great your redemption is in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we continue through Acts, which is one of the most engaging, interesting, and true stories ever told in human history. It is the story of Jesus building his church after he ascended to heaven and continues to build the church to the present day. Now as we begin this passage, I want us to keep in view the big picture of what this book is all about. This book is very thoughtfully structured by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and it ends in a particular way. Uh, Perhaps you recall the way the book of Acts ends in chapter 28. Some people have been disappointed by the ending in Acts. They think, 
where's the third volume? It seems like it sort of ends on a cliffhanger. You got Paul and he's in Rome and he's under house arrest and he's preaching. We think, where's the third volume, Luke? You know, we think it should be a trilogy or something. Well, I think it ends quite intentionally where it ends. Now, it may have been that Luke wrote it and that was all that had happened to the point at which he had written it. There may be other reasons he ended that way. But whatever Luke's reasons, I want you to note how this book ends. And I want us to see this because it really encapsulates what this book is all about, what it is teaching us chapter after chapter. So look at Acts 28, verses 30 through 31. I'm reading from the ESV this particular uh, two verses. This is speaking of Paul in Rome, and it says... He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is a great summary of the book of Acts because it says here's what they were doing. They were preaching God's kingdom. They were preaching Jesus Christ and they were doing it not timidly, not with fear, not with doubts, but with boldness and without hindrance. And that's fascinating that the very last word of the book is the word without hindrance. It's fascinating because Paul is under house arrest when it ends. We think if there's anything that could uh, hinder the preaching of the gospel, wouldn't it be prison? I mean, doesn't that cause trouble for getting the word out when you imprison God's messengers and they can't uh, preach quite as, as freely as they should? Well, the whole point of think of the book is that prison bars don't mean a thing for the gospel going forth. God's word, the gospel of Christ, is going to go forth no matter what opposition it faces. There really is no hindrance to its progress. Throughout the book of Acts, there's persecution, there are beatings, there are threats, there are imprisonments. There's even people getting killed for their faith. But it doesn't stop the advance of the gospel at all. The constant refrain of Acts is, the word of God grew and multiplied. God added to the number those who were being saved. There's growth, there's advance, there's progress. Because Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, cannot be stopped. And if we get that from the book of Acts, we have got the, one of the most basic points of this book. So let's keep that in mind as we look at this particular account. But I want to also look at two particular topics in our passage. There's first of all the illustration of the fact that Jesus' gospel is unstoppable through this prison break. We're going to look at this prison release through the angel and through the continued preaching in the temple. That's going to be one topic for us this morning. The second is that we need to then look at uh, Peter's message. Peter and the apostles, they use every opportunity to preach, even when they're on trial. And so we're going to look at what is it that the apostles say to the Jewish leaders. And in that brief statements that are recorded for us, we'll find a very good summary of how Jesus saves, uh, what his salvation shows itself in doing. So let's begin here with the uh, release from prison uh, that takes place in our passage. Let's review the fact that in chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, which we looked at last time, the apostles were in the temple and throughout Jerusalem they were doing signs and wonders. They were doing amazing miracles, all different kinds of healings and deliverances from bondage. And this matter of them bringing 
freedom and, and life and, and healing through the gospel of Christ was extremely offensive to the Jewish leaders. They were enraged that this was happening. The apostles were apparently guilty of very heinous crimes. Did you know that it was a heinous, heinous crime to heal people? And to deliver them from the demonic, that's apparently what they, they perceived it as. But what probably most offended them was not just the healings and the uh, release from the demonic. It was the fact that it was through the name of Jesus that it was taking place. And they had been a party to the killing of Jesus just uh, not many days before that. So it's rather alarming when the guy that you killed is the one through whose name amazing things are happening, that you would think something needs to be done. We need to stop this. And that's what happens in verses 17 through 18. It says, The high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Now imagine you're one of these Jewish leaders, you've, you've imprisoned the apostles and you go home at night and, and you say to your wife, took care of it, no more problems here, they're imprisoned. Good thing we don't have to worry about that preaching anymore. They probably slept well. Maybe they slept well thinking we've taken care of this, they're under arrest, they're in prison and nobody's getting through those prison bars, I don't have to worry about this until tomorrow. Well, if they thought that the prison bars were going to stop the apostles, they were wrong. And if we view this on a merely natural human level, we think, well, yeah, they're not getting out. I mean, unless somebody, some of these early Christians, they do a covert operation and they go in there and they do a prison break. They could have done that. But God has better ways of going about these things. He has angels. He can send angels to do things that would be very difficult or impossible for us to do. God doesn't need a key to open prison bars. Now, it's possible the angel got the key and used it. It doesn't say that. It probably didn't need the key. But whatever the case, God sends an angel to the prison to get them out and say, we need to resume this preaching. We have work to do. You have work to do. Get back in the temple ASAP tomorrow morning. Verses 19 through 20. At night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go, Stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. You see the commitment of the Lord Jesus Christ to getting his word out. He's not going to let prison bars hinder the advance of his gospel. He says, you need to get back into the temple. I have a message for you to deliver. And it's only a matter of of the Lord sending an angel. He says to this angel, go down to the prison, open the door, get them out. Done. That's all it takes. And this reminds us, brothers and sisters, that God is sovereign over every detail of our lives and what he enables us to do or disables us from doing. He is sovereign over all of these things. And if the Lord Jesus intends for a time for his people to be in prison, they will be in prison. If he intends for them not to be in prison, they will be out of prison as soon as he decides to get them out. This should give us such confidence as we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world that are in prison to know God can get them out very quickly if he so wills. He can take care of those things. Or he may have a ministry for them right there for a time. There's, of course, contemporary accounts and accounts throughout history of this very thing taking place, some miraculous prison breaks. 
Uh, Brother Yoon is one such example, the famous Chinese house church leader. He has testified, and other Christians have testified that know him, that he escaped miraculously from a maximum security prison in China and literally walked out. Checkpoint after checkpoint. Nobody saw him. Nobody stopped him. The doors were open. And as far as we know, nobody else has ever escaped from this maximum security prison ever except for him. This is how God can be at work, brothers and sisters. This is how he is at work in history to deliver his people. And so let us pray with confidence in the the power of Christ to deliver his people, to help his people in time of need, and to enable his word to go forth. Metal bars with locks present no significant obstacle to the Lord Jesus at all. So kids, this is the first point in your notes. Number one, the, the good news about Jesus cannot be stopped. The Lord Jesus will get the message out to the world. This is a gospel that is going to advance and it is going to succeed wherever the Lord Jesus sends it. Now, I also want to comment briefly on this ministry of angels. Uh, This is one of these accounts and acts of the ministry of angels. And it made me wonder, I wanted to review the question, what is it that angels do in Acts? Now, we could look throughout all the Bible and we could add to the list, but just limiting our focus to Acts for a moment, what is it that angels do? Well, there's about 21 total references to angels in the book of Acts. That's, of course, sometimes it's the same story with the word angel being repeated. Uh, but there's a number of narratives about angels. And it's important to remember who angels are and, and what are they doing. Uh, why has God sent forth these beings, these spiritual beings, into the world? And, and what is their ministry? Well, let's remember, of course, angels are spiritual beings who really exist, whom God created to serve him and to serve for the benefit of his people. And many times throughout Acts, these angels appear at critical junctures to do something for the saints and to help them in a time of need. And there's a number of examples You'll see the list there in your notes. First of all, there's two uh, instances of a prison break. Angels are really good at these prison breaks. They can get people out really quickly. Acts chapter 12 is my favorite one. We'll eventually get there with the, uh, the prayer meeting and then the angel breaking them out and them not thinking it was Peter because they didn't have enough faith to believe it was Peter and so forth. But then we also see in Acts chapter 8, sometimes the angels would direct Jesus' people to go do something. They'd say, hey, go over here. And preach. That's what happens with Philip when he's directed to pr- uh, preach to the Ethiopian eunuch in the, in, in the Gaza area. Then we have angels appearing to Cornelius. Cornelius directs, uh, or the angel directs Cornelius to Peter. And so the angels are actually at work to make this meeting happen, this sovereignly appointed meeting where this Gentile and his household will come to saving faith in Christ. Peter will recognize God's inclusion of the Gentiles, and so there's angels at work here in that as well. There's an instance of angels killing people in Acts chapter 12. An angel of the Lord strikes Herod down because he did not give God the glory. So apparently that's included in their list of activities as well. And then finally in Acts chapter 27, during the the storm on the ship that Paul is on, an angel of the Lord appears and comforts Paul and gives him a word of of, of prophecy concerning what is going to take place, that they're going to make it through. Uh, They're all going to survive. And so this gives you a sense for how the ministry of angels works as the church is built. 
And if you look at Hebrews 1, verse 14, you find a sort of overarching statement about what angels do. What is their function? In Hebrews 1, verse 14, we read, Are they not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? They're ministers. Or, of course, the word minister can also just be translated as servants. They're servants They're spirit servants that are sent forth with a purpose. They serve those who will inherit salvation. Jesus has assistants. They are his assistants, and he can send them wherever he wants and say, go help this person who is redeemed or who will yet be redeemed as well. It's good for us to remember that the Lord Jesus deploys his angelic armies to protect us and to care for us and to deliver us in time of need. As Psalm 91 promises, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. The angels remind us of the supernatural character of the book of Acts, that God is at work throughout in supernatural ways to build the church, uh, to oppose those who resist it. And it's, it's good for us to remember that we live in a world that is full of the supernatural works of God. We don't always get to see them with our eyes, though sometimes we do get to see amazing things. But God is at work all around us in ways beyond our understanding. And some of you have even shared stories where you think there may have been an angelic element to the deliverance. I appreciate those stories uh, to see God's hand at work to deliver and to save Now, the next part of our narrative is humorous to me. I don't know if it was humorous to you, uh, that when they gather the council and they send the guards to go get them out of prison, they do not find them in the prison. So they're all ready to go. They sit down for their council. They're very confident that the prisoners are going to be right where they left them. And they say, all right, go get them. And they go in. The door's locked. The the guards are standing outside. I don't know what the guards were doing. They didn't look inside, apparently. And they say, they're not here. They're in the temple preaching. Right where we tried to stop them, they are right back in the same place. Verse 21. When they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Oh, this is such an embarrassing moment for these leaders. They've they've worked so hard to bring a stop to this, but they can do absolutely nothing. And then they go into the temple, they, they grab them, but they're doing so fearful of the crowds. You see how powerless they are? Uh, They fear being stoned by the crowds because of their attempt to bring a stop to the preaching of the gospel. Of course, these these apostles have been healing people and proclaiming Jesus, and uh, the people would not have been favorable to stopping this ministry. And so they go back into the temple, they arrest them again, they bring them to the council, and then they bring up this issue, did we not strictly command you to stop preaching in the name of this man? And they were concerned because they said, you filled Jerusalem. That gives a sense of how busy they were in getting the word out. They, they had filled the city with the teaching about Jesus. And part of that preaching meant that these leaders looked really guilty. They, they were bringing the blood of Christ upon them. And they're offended by this. Do you remember when the Jews said, his blood be upon us and upon our children? Do you remember them crying that out when Pilate was saying, hey, he's innocent. What, what do you want to do? They asked for this. 
They asked for the blood of Jesus to be brought upon them. And indeed, they were guilty. They needed to repent. So Peter and the apostles, they stand before the council, but they do not cower. They do not apologize. They are not fearful. They respond in perhaps the most simplest way they could respond in verse 29 with a very, very strong point. They say in verse 29, We ought to obey God rather than men. It's very simple and straightforward to them that when the commands of God conflict with the commands of men, it is obvious what you must do. You must obey God and disobey men. This is very simple and straightforward as a principle for Christians. Now, it's not always simple to identify when those two things conflict. There are difficulties and questions of conscience when it comes to that. But when there is a confliction between those two, the commands of God, the commands of men, we must stand with the apostles. We must resist the unlawful use of authority that they were attempting to do here and say, we're going to obey God no matter what the consequences These men had received a commission from the risen Lord Jesus, the the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And what did Jesus told them to do? He said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in my name, do this everywhere. They had to obey the commission of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They had no option, no other option. And we'll see many times in Acts that God's people, they do resist these unlawful commands by civil authorities that try to stop the advance of the gospel. And and so this reminds us, of course, as we see throughout history, that whenever Christians preach and teach the gospel, whenever they assemble for worship, whenever they uh, pray uh, for others, whenever they do the things that Jesus has called them to do, it does not matter whether the civil government forbids them. We will stand with them and say... You were on good grounds to obey King Jesus. Keep in mind that it's not the apostles here who are the rebels. It's these Jewish councilmen who are the rebels against King Jesus. It's important that we keep that in mind when we think about civil resistance or civil disobedience in these kinds of contexts, that the real rebels are those that oppose King Jesus, who rules over all. It's not us as we seek to do the work of Christ. And so we see then that they not only uh, respond to this charge and say we, we are on good grounds to do what we're doing, we're obeying God rather than men, but they also use it as an opportunity to, to preach. They always do this whenever they're called to, whether, wherever they are. It doesn't matter whether they're on trial or whether they're in the temple. Uh, Paul will preach chained or unchained, as we see many times in the later chap- chapters. He's not concerned about that. They're going to get the message out, even on trial. And so what is it that they say? Well, after saying that they will obey God rather than men, they say in verse 30 through 31, again, a summary of what had happened. They summarize the the crucifixion of Christ. They remind them of the resurrection. And then they speak about how Jesus has been exalted above all, to bring these two great blessings to Israel and then by extension to the world, which is the two great blessings are repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Let's read these two verses again. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered 
by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We've seen this many times in chapter 2 and 4 and 5 that they, they summarize the message this way. You killed Jesus, which was a very evil thing to do. God raised Jesus. God exalted Jesus. And now here's the implication. It's all about the exaltation of Christ. We've seen how important the ascension of Christ is, that Jesus is exalted over every authority in heaven and on earth. He reigns from the right hand of God, and he is doing things. He is pouring out the Spirit. He is saving people. He is granting these blessings of salvation, and that's what they point out here again. So what are these, these blessings that are spoken of here? Well, before we look at the blessings, let's also look at what... The apostles call Jesus. They say that God exalted him to be something. What is it that he is to be, or he is? He is prince and savior. Prince and savior. As we look at those those titles given to our Lord, we might say, well, savior is quite familiar uh, to us. A, A savior saves. He he delivers from sin, right? We, we know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is straightforward to us. But the language of prince may be a, a bit um, more difficult to understand here. What does that mean? Well, as it's rendered here in the New King James, it's the word prince, which does speak of his authority, his royal authority. Uh, the problem with the word prince is we sometimes get the wrong ideas. It seems like the only two modern-day princes we know are not very good examples of what this means. You think of a Prince Harry or a Prince William, and it's just not going to get across uh, the right concept for you. And even, even more ancient or medieval concepts won't quite get at this concept for you. You might think of these young men who are awaiting uh, the assumption upon the throne uh, as princes, and that's also not quite what we're talking about here. This this word is one of those words that you sort of need like four or five English words to get across. It's just challenging like that. Some translations uh, translated as leader. Leader. Uh, elsewhere, this word is used in Hebrews 12 and Hebrews 2, where Jesus is called the captain of our salvation. Or in Hebrews 12, that same word is translated author. Remember the author and finisher of our faith. So how does prince and author and leader and captain, how does that all go together? It's kind of tricky. Well, I I think what you should see with this word, if you were to take all that taken together, the idea of this this word is the idea of a founder, a, a, a pioneer, a trailblazer, one who goes before you. You think of a a pioneer, right? Pioneers go before everybody else. And the idea is that Jesus has gone before us to save us and to grant these blessings. And the idea is that as we receive him in faith, as he is our Savior, all the blessings that are found in him become ours. We become sharers or partakers in his exalted uh, blessings. That is perhaps the way to describe it. Prince is kind of a difficult word, but prince or, or leader or forerunner, all of these may get the idea across. But what is it that he gives? Because that's what then the apostles focus on. Well, in verse 31, we see there are two blessings that they focus in on. The blessing of repentance. 
and the blessing of the forgiveness of sins. And children, this is the second point in your notes. Jesus ascended to heaven and now gives two precious gifts to all who believe in him, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So I want you to think of them that way, as gifts. Jesus is the giver of the greatest gifts, the gifts of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Now when I say that they're gifts, I'm working off of the fact that in verse 31 it says that Jesus has been exalted as Prince and Savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. That is to say that repentance and forgiveness of sins are sourced in Christ giving them as gifts. This is important to grasp because it reminds us that repentance and the forgiveness of sins are not, first of all, a work of man. We often think of repentance as something we do, and there is a sense in which we do that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But fundamentally, they are sourced in and must come from God who gives them as gifts. And you'll notice here that the the gift of faith is not mentioned in this summary. Of course, if you look through all the messages in Acts, you're going to find sometimes the messages emphasize faith, like the Philippian jailer who asks, what must I do to be saved? And what, is the, what, what do they say? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and your house and you will be saved. And then other messages just say, repent. Like in Acts 17, Paul is on Mars Hill. He says, God commands every man everywhere to repent. It doesn't say anything about faith. Now, one of the ways that we can reconcile that is to recognize that faith and repentance, though they are distinct from one another, they are never to be separated from one another. In Acts 20, verse 21, Paul gives this summary when he's before the Ephesian elders, and he tells the Ephesian elders what his ministry of preaching has been, and he brings both of these together. He says this, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, it's both, right? It's both a call to believe and a call to repent. Sometimes the call to belief is implicit in the message. The idea, of course, is that you need to believe that Jesus died and he rose again and he ascended. That's implicit in the, uh, the message itself. But sometimes the imperative is to repent. And let's remember that the word repentance, first of all, means a change of mind, which means you start with the very change of mind about Jesus. You say, I changed my mind that I don't believe in Jesus, and by the grace of God, I now see that he is the Savior, and he is the exalted one, and I put my trust in him. That, of course, is part of repentance. But what we see from all of this is that the preaching of faith and repentance is essential to faithful gospel proclamation. If we will be those that follow in the footsteps of the apostles, we must call men and women and children to faith and repentance. Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance towards God. We can't separate these things, we must do both. But let's go back to repentance as one of the gifts. We'll also deal with the forgiveness of sins. But let's think about repentance as a gift of God. Uh, Would you agree with this statement? I'm going to give you a statement and I want to ask, do you agree with this? Faith is a gift that God gives, and repentance is a work that man does. 
Do you agree with that, that statement? Faith is a gift that God gives, and repentance is a work that man does. Of course, there's an element of truth to the second part, but that's the problem. It's just an element of truth. Rather, what we ought to say is faith and repentance are both gracious gifts of God. Now, both of them involve something that man does as a response. God enables us to believe. He grants us the gift of faith, and we believe. We really must believe to be saved. And then God also grants us repentance. He gives it as a gift. And I want to go on and show from God's word that repentance is also a gift of God's saving grace, just as faith is a gift of God's saving grace. And part of the reason I want to focus our attention on repentance is, for one thing, it's the main thing in the text here. Faith isn't mentioned at this point. But also because I want to elevate our conception of what repentance is as a gift and blessing. And this is important, I believe, because repentance as a word in practice has fallen on hard times. I I have called it the ugly duckling among Christian vocabulary. There's words that are liked and then words that are not so liked. Faith and grace are words that are doing quite well uh, in terms of their popularity and their very important words. But repentance has not done so well. And there are reasons for that, but there are times in history where the situation has been reversed. We think of medieval Roman Catholicism during the time of the Reformation, and and faith has been so utterly neglected in terms of its meaning and its effect, in terms of justifying, um, saving faith being uh, the instrument by which we are justified or declared righteous in God's sight. That was neglected during that time. And repentance had been perverted into this concept of penance. Penance and repentance are not the same thing. Penance is the way you get your justification back in Roman Catholicism. And they say, they say as much. Uh, you lose your justification through committing a mortal sin, and you can get it back through the sacrament of penance. And penance involves various steps. It's not just confessing your sins. It does involve that. You've got to confess to a priest, and that priest can absolve you. He has the authority to absolve. Nobody else does at that point, and then you have to do works of satisfaction. That's what they call them, works of satisfaction. You have to do things to regain the grace of your justification. Well, that's, of course, a very unbiblical conception of repentance. It's not what the Bible teaches about repentance. Biblical repentance was exchanged for this man-made system of penance and works of satisfaction, and so we need to regain a right understanding of repentance as a good and blessed gift of God that he enables within us. So let me read our our shorter catechism's definition and then just make a few points on, on repentance as a blessed gift. It says, repentance unto life is a saving grace. Notice that word, saving grace. It comes from God. It is the grace of God that enables repentance whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God and with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So there's many things we could say about this definition, but notice what it says. It is a saving grace of God. God grants the gift of repentance, and as that gift then comes to one who has received it, that person begins to 
not only see how horrible their sins are, but how merciful God is in Christ. And and seeing the mercy of God in Christ, they say, I don't want to have anything to do with these sins anymore. I want to receive God's mercy. And they receive that mercy by faith. They receive the gift of Christ. And then after that, what follows in that process of repentance is they are endeavoring. They are striving to turn away from sin and then turn unto God and his ways. It involves a whole new change of direction, a whole new commitment. Now, some have asked the question, if, if we are saved by faith alone, which we agree with that statement, we're saved by faith alone, why is repentance necessary? And I say repentance is necessary because you'll recall Jesus in Luke 13, he said uh, to those that were speaking of a very serious calamity that had happened, he says, unless you repent you will all likewise perish. In that statement, Jesus is making repentance necessary in some sense. Well, the distinction I think we would draw is that it is by faith alone that we are justified before God. That our repentance doesn't contribute to that. Our repentance doesn't make us right in the sight of God. Repentance is not some sort of substitute work. So throw that away. We are saved by faith alone. We are justified, declared righteous in God's sight by believing in Jesus Christ and we are going to be in the kingdom of God. Where does repentance come in? Well, it is the necessary saving grace that Jesus also bestows upon all those that have the gift of saving faith. Now, think about this for a moment. Would it be good news for Jesus to come and bring a salvation that enables us to be forgiven of our sins, but he did not save us from those sins which corrupt and destroy us. Would that be a comprehensive good news? What if, it, yeah, what if the message was, you're forgiven, but you are enslaved forever? What kind of message is that? No, the message of the the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus saves us from sin comprehensively. He saves us from sin in every respect in which it affects us. He saves us from the guilt of our sins. We're completely forgiven of them. He saves us from the enslaving power of sin. And then, as we enter into glory, there is absolutely no sin left and no death. He overcomes the problem of death as well. And so this is a comprehensive salvation that Jesus brings. He is a great Savior. He saves us in all these ways that we need saving. He breaks the power of reigning sin in our lives. He establishes us under the reign of grace. And he enables us to hate sin. And to turn away from it and to turn to God. And this is where the gift of repentance comes in. It is a gift of God that fixes our wrong ways of thinking about sin. It's like you've been ingesting poison for, for decades, just decades of your life, just ingesting poison. Somehow you're surviving. It's, it's damaging your body very badly, though. And, and it's like repentance comes and replaces our spiritual taste buds. We now start to realize, I am in, ingesting poison. Why am I drinking poison? I don't want to drink poison anymore. I want something good to drink. 
There's a total change of mind and change of affections and then a change of will that follows and so our, our taste buds are replaced and, and suddenly sin comes to our mouths so and we say, oh, that's, that's really gross. I don't, I don't want that anymore. And we turn away from it. This is what the gift of repentance does. It, it enables us to see the thing that is destroying us and then to turn away from it. What a good gift that is. That we're finally able to see with clear eyes and then our wills are enabled to turn. And so kids, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, repentance is a wonderful gift. Through God's gift of repentance, we begin to turn away from the sin which destroys us. Well, I've said, of course, I've said a number of times that this is a gift of God and some might say, well, Where does the Bible say that? Where does it say that God has to grant repentance for us to have repentance? Well, there's a number of places, but I'll just highlight Acts chapter 11, verse 18. And in Acts 11, verse 18, we we recall this is the follow-up to Cornelius and his household's conversion. And Peter, he recounts the the work of God and the the descent of the Spirit upon the Gentiles. and, And at the end of the meeting... The church, the members of the church, they say this in Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, "Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life." God had granted repentance to this this group of people. And if you're wondering, well, does that happen on a more individual basis? Well, it does. In Second Timothy two twenty five, I won't read the whole passage now, but. In 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul speaks about those that had gone wayward, those that had left the church, and those that were erring in their understanding of truth. And he says that God may grant them repentance, that there was to be a prayer and a desire that God would grant repentance to those that had gone in a wayward direction. And so in all of this, brothers and sisters, I hope that we see that repentance is a great and wonderful gift that the exalted Jesus gives to his people And it is part of his great salvation that he is bringing to the world. Now, as we think about this gift of repentance, it's it's good for us to remember then to ask ourselves the question, have I been granted this gift? Do each of us desire repentance? Have, Have your eyes been opened at all to your desperate need for change? Do you realize something is very wrong with me? And I need saving. I need fixing in a large-scale basis. Now, you might be hearing this and thinking, you've just told me that repentance is a gift of God and God must grant it, then what can I do? If I don't have repentance, what can I do? And that's a good question. Uh, Yes, God must grant repentance, but how will you know? How will you know that the Holy Spirit is awakening you to your need for Christ, your need for for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It'll be made evident when you pray to God and say, Lord, I need repentance. I need my sins forgiven. Would you forgive me? Would you clean me? Would you give me the ability to turn from these sins which have so long enslaved me and turn back to you? The very prayer itself can be evidence of the work of God within our hearts. God enabling us to turn. So not only is repentance mentioned here, but there is another blessed gift that the exalted Christ gives, and that is the gift of the forgiveness of sins. 
Here we see the the manifold riches of God's grace that Jesus is Savior to grant the forgiveness of all of our sins. Verse 31 again, God has exalted him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We need to grasp something of the blessedness of this gift because under the old covenant there was this constant reminder of the need for forgiveness. The very system was built to remind you of your need for forgiveness year after year, day after day. It was like a visual picture was set before you and to say, you need your sins forgiven. Again and again and again and again. And yes, the, the worshipers, they would come to the temple, they'd offer that bowl as a sin offering, and the priest could tell the worshiper, atonement has been made. That's what they were actually to declare in, in the scriptures. Uh, they, the, the sacrifice would be made, and they'd say, atonement has been made. But then what happened when you sinned again? You had to go back. You had to take another bowl. You had to bring that sacrifice to the temple again, and you you would be constantly reminded of this problem that, yes, my sins are being forgiven, but i got to keep coming back over and over again. But with the, the blessing of the new covenant, there's no need for another offering. There's nothing you can bring yourself. There is rather one offering that forever sanctifies God's people, and that is the offering of Christ once for all. And as Hebrews 10 verse 18 says of the new covenant, where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have full forgiveness forever in the blood of Christ. We are washed clean of every sin that we have committed. Every transgression is blotted out of God's record book, never to be held against you again. Now, as we think about these blessings, these blessings that Acts 5.31 describes, it's, it's good for us to see these, these two things brought together, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, that this is what the exalted Christ gives when he saves people. He gives them both, not just one or the other. And perhaps you've seen the slogan on the bumper sticker, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. Have you ever seen that? I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Now, what, what should we think of that? Well, there's an element of truth, right? That we would say, I'm forgiven, and it's true. I am not perfect. I am still a sinner. So we, we agree with the bumper sticker in that regard. But I think it would be in more alignment with the apostolic message to say, I'm repenting and forgiven. I think that would just be closer to what we see here in Acts 5, 31. Uh, the scriptures don't talk as much about not being perfect. It certainly does talk about still sinning, uh, notably, Hebrews, 10, or Hebrews says that we've been perfected forever through the uh, sacrifice of Christ. That's good to remember. But I think it would be in better alignment to say, I have been granted the gift of repentance and I am forgiven. Uh, that would be in better alignment with what the apostles are saying here. It's not quite as catchy as the original slogan, but it's a little more accurate to what the whole message of the apostles were. And to the degree that when people have that slogan, if they mean... I'm forgiven, but I'm unchanged. We must utterly disagree with that. 
I don't know if that's what people mean when they use the bumper sticker or not, but if that's what they mean, then we must disagree because what Jesus has come to do is not only to forgive us, but to radically transform us through the gift of repentance. And so as we come to the the conclusion of our passage today, I ask all of us, have these gifts been bestowed on you? Have you experienced the gifts of faith and repentance from the Lord Jesus who has risen again from the dead and who is at the right hand of God? And this is what the Word of God declares to all of us today, that Jesus has been exalted as Prince and Savior. That is where He is right now, and He is pouring out these gifts upon all who come to Him. And the Lord Jesus says that He will never cast out anyone who comes to Him. You can come to Him and ask Him, Lord Jesus, grant me repentance, grant me the forgiveness of sins. I so desperately need both of these things. I call upon Your name to redeem me. And if the Spirit of God has awakened you to your lost condition today, then know that Jesus is ready to receive all who come to him by faith. Now, if you belong to Christ, then you know that these blessings that our exalted Lord has given, you have experienced these blessings. You know them. You know the gift of repentance. You know the forgiveness of sins. And it is for us, then, to continue to rejoice in those gifts today. It is to rejoice and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given me repentance. Thank you for enabling me to see that which was destroying me and to turn me from it. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you have bestowed and that I come come back to every day when I say, Lord, forgive me of this. We stand upon that forgiveness that Christ has secured for us. And so if if you have received these wonderful gifts, then let us rejoice as the people of God that this is what Jesus has done for us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you as the exalted Savior, uh, as, as King, as Lord, as Deliverer. And we thank you for what you have done to secure our salvation. We ask, O God, that these blessings of repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be sent forth uh, in our land and in our community, that you would grant the blessings to many more. We ask that you would enable us to continue to walk in the Christian life, lives of faith and repentance, knowing that we are called to continue in this gift of repentance, continue in the change of mind and transformation that you bring. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would do great things for the glory of your name. We pray this in your name. Amen.